Hi, this is Paul Ritchie. This interview with Errol Otis is a part of a series for the 30th anniversary of Star Control, the Urquan Masters, focusing on the many talented people who helped create the game, besides me and Fred. Errol Otis is an artist, game designer, writer, and musician who for the last 40 years has worked on some of the biggest, best games of all time, as well as some of the most unusual ones. Errol's first published art was in 1977's Arduin Grimoire, one of the first successful role-playing supplements outside of Dungeons & Dragons. Most recently, Errol was a designer at Toys for Bob for over 15 years, helping to create Skylanders, one of the most successful game franchises of all time. How are you doing, Errol? Oh, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Paul. Good. So, full disclosure here. Um, I had the insane good fortune to meet Errol at high school in 1976 when I was 15. And uh, without his talent and friendship, I would never have become a game designer at all. I'm glad you remembered that. I actually don't remember the exact date. I've been puzzling over that. That's good. Yes. I think so. I think I that's think so. about right. We were just learning to drive. That was a very key time in our lives. So I'm going to start off with a pretty broad question. Which is, who are you, and what games and other things have you worked on? Um, I am uh, I'm Errol Otis, and I've worked on, uh, I guess, best known for and starting with Dungeons & Dragons, both advanced versions, basic and expert. Uh, and then uh, I had a chance to work on Archon as a playtester. Uh, then The Last Ninja... Starflight 2, which was a great game. Uh, did some artwork for that. Star Control 1 as a playtester. And then quite a few things for Star Control 2. That was a, a great experience. Um, also uh, a couple of Star Trek games. A Final Unity and Generations. A couple of uh, MechWarrior games. Mech Commander and MechWarrior 3. And then several small conversions of board games for Games.com. Uh, Scrabble, Monopoly, Battleship, and others. Uh, then uh, Disney Skate at TFB, Madagascar, Tony Hawk's Downhill Jam, Madagascar 2. Uh, also, uh, several uh, paper RPGs, doing artwork for those. Uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, Swords and Wizardry. Uh, oh, and uh, also quite a while ago, Alma Mater, and Hackmaster. And then, uh, most recently, the Skylanders series of video games, Skylanders, Skylanders Giants, Trap Team, and lastly, and perhaps bestly, Imaginators. Great. So, let's go back to Star Control 2. Actually, first, let's go back to Star Control 1, mm. because I believe you did do some art on that, if I recall. I was looking through some of the big still pictures that were done for each spaceship, and the Umga stood out to me. As looking like something that you may have illustrated. Oh. oh, you're right. That was on the computer, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, okay. What were, what were those used for? I actually don't remember. There was a... Uh, I can't remember what the... I edit, edit in what it actually is. But there were these, uh, like, you could go look at ships, and it would give you a nice big picture of the spaceship and then readouts of its weapons and a little bit of kind of flair and flavor text. Okay. Because we didn't have that much story and we didn't have the places to sort of show the background of the aliens. And that was one of the places. Yeah. Well, I would love, yeah, I, I'm seeing that in my mind's eye and I'd love if you have a, 
uh, can link me to that or point me to that image at some point, that would be really cool. You betcha. I just so happen to have been looking at everything Star Control 2 <laughs> related and Star Control 1. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about the what you remember doing for Star Control 2. Now, it, you know, I think you're primarily known as an artist, but you contributed to the game in more ways and more categories than anybody else. How, when you think back to the work you did, what stands out? Uh, well, <clears throat> the main thing were the alien uh, view screen pictures, and those were really a lot of fun to do and were done both uh, with uh, painting, uh, uh, acrylic painting, and then digitally. Um, and then they were uh, scanned in and animations added by Paul and team. Um, so that was that was the main thing that I did, and that was some pretty cool images came out of that. But there was also a little music. I did the what ended up being the Urquan theme, um, and that was uh, that was also a lot of fun to do. Uh, it was uh, composed on an emulator too. Was a sampler, uh, big back in the day, and it had an eight track uh, sequencer on it, and that's how that uh, theme was created. And then there was some uh, some writing for uh, some different uh, dialogue that the aliens would speak, and um, and then some recording for uh, the audio of the Chimur, which was sort of a robot, robotic voice, <clears throat> kind of an homage to uh, something from Star Trek. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but uh, Guardian of Forever. Or... I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was that the two? Uh, there were so many cool robotic oh, yeah. voices in Star there Trek. Were. But, uh, there was the lights <clears throat> of Zatar. They were kind of sounded like smooth Greek gods, if I recall. And there was the Guardian of Forever, who definitely sounded like a big. What did Nomad sound like? I don't remember that. I am Nomad. It made a little Nomad, but there's somebody else. You are or, the Kirk. even more, yeah. Even um, more oh, let's see. There was Blaylock. He had a nice nope. big, big voice. Um, there was. Let's see. There's some research. Do some research. Yeah, we got to do some research into that. Yeah, there was a lot of good voices in there. That's. I don't know about you, but Star Trek is always running in my head. Um, people are always asking me, "What do you think of this new show? What do you think of this new show?" And then mm, compare, compare it. it to, yeah. And I just say, "I can't." That's a big part of what I'm running in my head is still Star Trek. And, mm. You know, whenever I hear the boards creak or something like that, I just you. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said that. If you watch the old shows, you can hear the boards creak as they walk around, and once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Oh, not, now I'll can, listen for I'll it. Forget that. Maybe we should wipe your memory of that one. But anyway, um, you should also just, just. I have been watching, of course, all things Star Trek, and the new series is really not easy to watch. Um, there's two, right? Well, there's yes. This is strangely symmetrical. There is a television show called Star Trek. It has some of the things that people do in Star Trek, and then it has, in my mind, some really dumb stuff. Oh, like the main out. conceit is a fungus drive. They drive the, the thing that makes their ship go. Like their advanced super tech is fungus. Hmm. Now I know you're a fungus fan. Yes, that is true. But I also I can see how it's a stretch to have it power. It's not just doesn't seem like a very energetic matter and and also i can imagine little circular spores like drying up and floating through space but i don't think of some like network of anyway mm. anyway i may be deep overthinking this but um then there is uh, uh the orville a com it's a sort of a comedy one yeah but but somehow 
it actually is more Star Trek, at least hmm. the, the way that my brain sees it. Yeah, I, I haven't watched the show yet, but I've, I've watched some uh, KTVU, our local station that carries it, and the previews are shown there a lot. And it looks like Star Trek to me. I, I don't know. Ship design's pretty good. Yeah, Channel 44... Um, is that KBHK or KTV? KTVU is Channel, Channel 2. Channel 2, that's the yeah, order. starring Frank Somerville. But uh, KBH, is it KBHK is Channel 44? That was, those, sure. those two channels were really instrumental in one's childhood in the mm-hmm. Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And don't forget Channel 20. Ultraman was on Channel oh, 20. Oh, right. Yeah, UHF. First time I realized there was other channels as a child. It was amazing, and Ultraman was there. It took work, too. I remember to get it. You had to, you know, you didn't go click, click, click. You had no, to, no, you had to, yeah. It was a, like a radio tuner. I wonder if people know what we're talking about. Mm. <laughs> you actually had to learn to use TVs in the old days, and it was pretty fun. Um, so... Okay, so we're talking about yeah, Star Control and your contributions. Yeah, you did a, a whole lot of um, traditional media paintings, which were then scanned and animated after the fact. And I was looking through the credits and, and getting into touch with all of the people who did that work. One guy I haven't yet reached out to is Kyle Balda, who did a whole lot of the animation on mm. top of those communication screens. And I would get the paintings from you, and I would scan them in, and then I would leave them set up in deluxe paint for mm. Kyle. And Kyle, I think, was working at LucasArts at the time, but he was a student at CalArts, and he would come up at night to the office and just sort of out of sight from us would do all of this animation. And we'd just show up in the morning, and it was done. So he was sort of our animation brownie. Yeah. And then um, I didn't see Kyle for a while. I knew he went off into traditional films, but... Then I recently kind of stumbled into him. Uh, he directed Minions most recently, one of the most successful movies of all time about those little yellow guys. You're kidding me. Nope. Nope. He he's, <coughs> seems to be doing much better these days, but um, I do intend on getting in touch with him. That's really cool. Huh. Finding out what happened in the middle of the night uh, when we weren't there, when he was animating. But uh, yeah, his, his stuff was great, and there was a lot of funny partnerships in star control there was a lot of you know we some people were paid some people were volunteers uh, i think a lot of the writing you did uh, initially was volunteers oh yeah i hope you got paid for the paintings I think yes you, you did. did okay you good. paid me for the paintings humorously i may have to get you to sign releases for those but that's a longer story okay um and so in addition to the music that you did and, and what, one of the things that's interesting i think about the music is we were moving from synthesized audio um you know, if you go all the way back to the Atari 800 or the Commodore 64, you had these really early sound chips mm. that had like a noise channel and a couple of different waveforms that you could select from. And then when the Amiga showed up, it introduced us all to digital, not just digital recording, but using digital samples to synthesize music. Mm. But you were using a professional audio kit to do that. Were there any bands at that time in the late 80s, early 90s that were using that same tech? The emulator too. Oh, oh yeah. Um, it was uh, yeah. That was a that was a big a big sampler at the time. I mean, uh, excuse me. I have to cough. <coughs> Let's see. Take this opportunity to sip. Oh yes. Let's see who was <clears throat> who was using the E two. Uh, Steve Naive of Elvis Costello. Depeche Mode, uh, Heaven 17. I mean, there was a lot. It was very popular. It was, the, it was when it came out, it was the number one. I remember sampler. going to see The Residence, I think. Oh, The Residence, of was course. That it? Oh, okay, because well, I they remember. they had the first emulator, I think, and they probably had the second one. 
I just remember that they had sort of this like lockstep inserting of the floppy disks during their performance <laughs> to get the next set of samples onto their machine. Great. Yes, big a big floppy disk. Yep. So when the Amiga came out, it introduced uh, holding digital audio and playing it back samples and then manipulating the way those samples were played to create what sounded like a continuous piece of music. And mm. that was the first time that Fred and I ran into that. Uh, it's called the mod file format. I believe it comes from Finland or, or from the European demo scene. But we first saw it, I believe, in a um, demo of Dune, one of the original Dune games. Mm. There was a great mod about that sounded like the desert sands. And then uh, Blood Money came out. Uh, and a number of other games from uh, European, English, and, and Finnish and German teams using this mod format. And so we saw it as a great opportunity to make music that sounded different, but no one here knew how to make them as far as we could tell. But your format was sufficiently close that we were able to transcribe it. I have no idea how you did that. <laughs> some of it was by ear, and some of it was the magic of Fred Ford's programming. Huh. Uh, but that was that allowed us to see that there was a path to get um, com composition done in the U.S. into the game. However, we ran out of people. Like, there was you, and then we just stumbled to find anyone else that we knew who had that same setup. And so we ended up finding out that most of the people who used the mod format were over in Europe. And we ended up having a music competition, which uh, was a desperate attempt by us to get a whole lot of music uh, from from someone who is talented at a reasonable price. And maybe we'll do a whole separate recording podcast on that. But uh, for me, the Urquan theme always stood out as sort of this acme or exemplar of what we were looking for, which was power, um, not overly soft and electronic. And if you think about the color of pulp science fiction, there's, there's some connection into audio that I felt like it was just a very bold, exciting piece. When you were making it, what were you thinking about? Grimness and grandeur. That's it. I was thinking about, you know, it's, it's war, but it's also majesty and also, I don't know, not necessarily mystery, but uh, space. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, space is a good place, uh, full of grimness and majesty, I hope. Hope we can get there someday. Um, the Urquan were the in the first game. I, I think actually the first theme you did was for the Amiga version of Star Control One. I don't know if you recall that, but there was a an Urquan. There, there was a hierarchy victory theme, and then there was an alliance victory theme. Do you recall those? I'm afraid not. Yeah, I, I actually haven't been able to track them down either. So we'll probably edit this part out, but. What I do recall is at the end of it, the very first version of the theme I got was your voice going, oh, Star Control. Control. Yeah, uh, I think that's the same piece. Like the original, uh, the original sort of intent I had, and I'm glad it still worked out and was used, was for it to be the theme of the game in my egotistical <laughs> mind. Uh, so yeah, I had that thing at the end. And again, I think it was wise to take that out because really it was a little too close to... Uh, uh, it's full of stars, you know. Um, that's where I got it from, from the uh, Space uh, Odyssey sequel. I thought uh, it was pretty cool. We were just a little worried that the name wasn't going to end up being Star Control. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe we can resurrect that somehow. 
for people to check out. Um, so uh, what else? Let's see. Uh, the, let's talk a little bit about the oars. Greg Johnson wrote the bulk of the oars dialogue, but I remember handing him a document that you gave me some cryptic tips mm. and thoughts about the oars, but mm. they, there were no explanations. Mm. There was just words like happy campers. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I can't remember why it seemed to me that you probably described that the oars would be uh, so uh, cryptic and uh, a little difficult to understand. But at the time, we had a, uh, a vice president named Dan Quayle, who exhibited to me uh, a lot of these sort of same qualities and fragments of speech and thought that were difficult to understand. And Happy uh, Campers, I think, was one of them he referred to. I, I don't remember who, but some people who were having a hard time as being okay because they were happy campers, and it just seemed so wrong. Uh, uh, Although and, it strangely seems to fit into modern political thinking. Oh, well. yeah. Now, I mean, I mean, I, I don't want to get too deeply into politics, but Dan Quayle was just simply a foreshadowing of, of much more uh, amazing things. But yeah, yeah, his he helped he helped me think about the oars in, in a in a in I think a successful way, at least a genesis of how they might communicate. Great. Um, all right. So let's see. Original remake. Um, as, as you said earlier, you did do the voice work, voice acting for the Chimur on the 3DO version. Did, was that the first time you had done voice acting? For, yeah, for a final product. That is, that is true, I, I think. Yeah. Do you find voice acting comes naturally to you? Uh, uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there's not, um, sometimes you don't need, yeah, I think so. Uh, not a lot of thought goes into it before the voice comes out. It sort of like shows up. Um, do you think, uh, being a DM for so many years helped that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It is performance uh, on a scale that I'm comfortable with, <laughs> comfortable with, right? With just a few people who who aren't recording you, uh, and uh, it's it's a really it's a great tool to jump back and forth from the impartial presence or, or overseer of the of the the real DM, and then a character who's interacting directly with the players. Um, you can it's a lot of fun, and it adds interesting moments i have to be careful though in playing with people i've who know me very very well like yourself sometimes when i jump into that uh the character who's talking directly with the players certain people get more information than i intended <laughs> uh so it's a vulnerable thing but that's okay that's part of the game but yeah the the different voices for the characters um is uh or, or doing that while dming is definitely helped me hone uh, some talent in that area. Yeah, and you worked at, at Toys for Bob. You actually recorded more lines, I think, than any single other actor. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what voice you did in Star Control? In, uh, Sorry, yeah. in... Let, let me start that one over. Um, most people may not know that you not only did voice acting work in Skylanders all of the games, but you probably have more lines than anybody else. Can you tell me who you played in Skylanders? So the main, there were, there were quite a few different characters, but the main one was a guy known as the announcer, 
who who came into being, I believe, during the creation of the PvP player versus player mode uh, for Skylanders. Skylanders is uh, lighthearted and whimsical in many ways, and the announcer is a very serious guy, and that provided a nice uh, kind of uh, humorous contrast to a lot of the things uh, a serious guy would say about things in Skylanders. Uh, Do you Skylanders. have a favorite line that he might have said? Yes, well, he yeah. well he said many, many things, um, and when, uh, I guess both in PvP and the regular game, a Skylander would eat a power-up, a food power-up, he would say, delicious. And that 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 one lives on. Uh, a lot of times we would say that in the office. Um, but a lot of the, the power-ups were fun to say, like Chinese food and things like that. It was a good, yeah, the announcer was made. I think I did early on in Skylanders, there was a really neat idea that some of our characters would not speak. They would actually make monster sounds. Um, and uh, I... I kind of wish we would have kept some of that. Obviously, the speaking is a lot more engaging, but if some of them had been made monsters, I think it would have been better. Like the Eruptor had a... sort of a voice that that I miss, but... No. <laughs> yeah, those... I think the first Skylanders... Now I'll have to double-check this. I think there weren't voices for every single characters in Skylanders 1, but by Giants, I think they all had personalities... Did we have? Oh, okay. I'll have to go back and check the Eruptor. There was some, yeah, there was definitely some good voice acting on those sound, sound effect-like voices. We definitely started that way. I thought we eventually, well, we'll see. Yeah, I remember having a conversation, actually, with uh, Eric Hirschberg about that. And he was dead said that every character should speak and have a tagline. And ultimately, I believe he was right in that kids would associate with those lines and repeat mm. them. Mm. And in that, some of our monsters that didn't speak for me ended up having that personality. And, you know, but I do, well, maybe playing D and D with you, there were an awful lot of monsters we faced who mostly made sound effects and <laughs> I enjoyed them a lot. And yeah, I, you know, when we, this is off the record, but when, when we play D and D every now and then I realized I probably shouldn't be blurting out exactly what's in my head. <laughs> But it's really fun to apply 56-year-old pattern matching. <laughs> like, at 16 or 17, I had no idea what was going on. But anyway, so it's, it is a lot of fun, but I, I should probably not try to just read, read your mind. Well, it's okay. I, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's see. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your history. Um, early on, I, uh, my first experience with you was as a D&D player and as a great DM, but what stood out from everybody else we knew was that you were an amazing artist, even at 15 and 16. How did you end up being a great artist? Oh, wow. Well, uh, thank you. I don't think uh, uh, I was a, am a great artist, was a great artist, but at that time... I was having a lot of fun drawing for uh, the the purpose of enhancing the game. It was just it was just natural and fun to draw magic items and monsters and and the maps. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I had been drawing my whole life up to that point. Um, Are there other artists in your family? Oh yes, my mom. My mom's a great artist. Uh, 
an unrecognized great artist. Uh, she's yeah, uh, both paint multiple disciplines, but yeah, lots and lots of paintings. There's a painting by her right there. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, she encouraged me and helped me a lot with materials and, uh, took me on some, uh, excursions. Uh, she used to go to a watercolor seminar, uh, down in Monterey. And I went to that and tried to do watercolors very bad. It's tricky watercolors. Well, actually, uh, I've seen some of your early watercolors. Oh, oh yeah. No, later. Uh, I mean, early. Uh, my watercolors, the good ones, were, were sort of just like, uh, I don't want to diminish it, but came out good because what I was doing was coloring a pen and ink drawing most of the time. And uh, to control uh, a watercolor separate of pen and ink on watercolor paper and create some of the the desired effects it's you got one shot basically and then the next piece of paper comes out if it didn't come out right yeah you can't fix it and what were the first what was the first job that you got paid for in as being an artist i think yeah i think dave hargrave paid me i'm pretty sure um and so that would be illustrating his ardo and grimoire which was a pretty imaginative and cool book yeah so for those of you who may not know david hargrave wrote the Art and Gamora series, which really was one of the first creative equals with D&D in many ways. It wasn't nearly as successful economically, but it was inspiring to us. Uh, well, not only did you illustrate it with, uh, personally for me, in a style and a form that people have never matched. I th there's something about your illustrations that stands out from all the other artists in D&D. And, and even back then, I can go look at some of the illustrations that are online and still see that they're definitely you. Hmm. And whether it's the style of your pen and ink or whether it's just what your characters are up to or their relationship with monsters, monsters are on an equal, if not superior, footing. Yeah, yeah. There's I think you got to take their side in D&D. I mean, uh, I think it was might have been Lauren Schick who said it in some interview or other... Uh, uh, about how D and D was a game that gave players uh, not an excuse, but the right to kill other creatures and take their stuff, <laughs> and and when you know that's pretty rough, um, and I think it's kind of glossed over a lot of the times because the players are quote unquote heroes, but what they're doing, and I don't want them to stop doing it, but I think people need to recognize. Um, that there's another side to the story and, and monsters are cool and uh, there's something brutal about it that's missing a lot of times in, in illustrations where you see the confrontation is sort of like before what's really going down is going to happen, you know? The monster's going, ah, and the, the hero has a sword, mm, but what's about to happen is pretty, pretty brutal and I like to include some of that uh, in my illustrations just to, you know, keep it uh, honest I'd love to, I don't know if it's possible, but show some images in the, in the next to the podcast of like accompanying photos. Oh, yeah. So maybe, maybe we can pick out a few go back yeah. and forth and pick out a few. Cause there's monsters are definitely giving as good as they're getting in many of them. And the, yeah. And, 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 uh, yeah, I think that, that, uh, isn't, it's not usually the final outcome, um, of D and D games, although it can be, especially at conventions where people don't care about their characters and behave more stupidly and often are wiped out. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, that outcome needs to be, uh, considered. That idea of monsters and treasure 
which is so common nowadays, but it was unspoken for a long time. I think those of us who played role-playing games, when you said monsters and treasure, that meant like, that's like what you do in life, in an <laughs> <in> analogy. <laughs> but one of the first times I realized what you said, and I've actually never heard anyone say it quite that way, uh, was my daughter Ariana and I got Baldur's Gate for Christmas, and we played it for like two weeks straight. It was one of the few times that we've ever just vanished from the family. Mm. And she was, I think, 11 or 12. And really got into it, played it all the way through, had a great time. And we were driving down the road a little bit after, and when you play a game like that for eight or ten hours straight, and then you go out into the real world, you're still sort of in that game world, and you're seeing the real world through a lens. We're driving down the road, and there were some guys, probably, you know, people who got arrested for driving drunk, working in those yellow outfits by mm. the side of the road, picking up trash. And my daughter said, I wonder if we could hit them and take their treasure. Wow. <laughs> and I think she was joking. Joking, yeah. But, but the joke was fueled by, yeah. Right. Everybody is just, take. can you take their treasure? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that'll be an alien race in the next uh, Urquan Masters game. <laughs> That'd be a nice turnaround, actually. Um, Lauren Schick... Uh, was a is a pretty amazing character. Uh, you know, I wasn't thinking we'd initially talk about him, but um, lately, uh, well, let's let's start out. Who was Lawrence Schick? He was a, a editor and designer at uh, TSR. I I think he was he was already there, but very recently there when I started in in, in seventy nine. He, uh, but yeah, yeah, and he was uh, actually he was my roommate as well for a while. He and his wife offered uh, to share their, really a pretty cool rental. Um, and Paul, you were there too as well. Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, yeah. So we were roommates for a while. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Lawrence, workers at TSR. Yeah, Lawrence was an inspiration to me as well. He was my boss for a while. Although Errol uh, did design while he was there and did DM games and compete as a DM Mostly what you're known for at TSR was art. Oh, yeah. And Lawrence was a design, head of design, when I got there, and so I worked for him. And he had a lot of inspiration for me. One of them was, I believe I'm quoting him, stop using so many goddamn commas, <laughs> which I hear that voice in my head to this day, but I still use too many commas. But Lawrence I'm took, still trying to figure out the semicolon. I've never... You could probably There's however. I know out, what to do with however. You could take out a comma and use a semicolon. Start sometime. using two dashes. You can use two dashes for anything. I swear to God. Um, sorry, English teachers throughout history who have tried to teach me grammar. And sorry, Lyle Brennan, who I believe got several degrees in grammar, and I should probably learn from him. That's my, my daughter's fiancé. Ah. Uh, but anyways, uh, so Lawrence Chick was not only the head of design at TSR, he designed White Plume Mountain, hmm. um, a great early D&D module. He designed A4, which was that great module where they take away all your stuff and you have to run around hitting people with like beaver skulls or something like that. I loved that module. Uh, he was one of the two designers on Star Frontiers, and he's had a career like Errol and I, he moved into video games, worked at Coleco on ColecoVision and a number of PC games, and he's still, insert whatever Lawrence is asking. like the head of American Online, America Online game something? For a while there. Yeah. I think he is now the official head of lore for the Elder Scrolls. Hmm. But 
interestingly, he also, I believe, has the most recent translation of the third Three Musketeers book that was released uh, last year, a couple of years back, which I only know one or two people who've read that book. Um, anyway, so moving on. Uh, let's see. Uh, so in 1980, uh, after graduating high school, and uh, you had, did you go to college for one year, two years? Well, okay. Um, graduated high school in 78 and went to Cal for one year uh, before moving to Lake Geneva in 79. So you moved from Berkeley, California, which is very temperate climate, to Wisconsin, yeah. which is not. What was that transition like? Oh, well, you, I think you, yeah, um, you can imagine I, the, the weather was a big shock to me. I had never been anywhere like that before. Um, I mean, it's going to sound wimpy, but yeah, uh, I was, I was uh, particularly struck by the idea that in the winter, anyway, if you stayed out overnight, you would be dead. That was a new, new, new thing. And then uh, in, the, in the summer, it was humid and the mosquitoes would just devour me. I mean, I, I mean, it's well known, right? Things like fleas bite everyone. You just have a reaction or not. But mosquitoes have preferences. And I, Paul, you may remember this, but I discovered that they, when we are together, they prefer me and not you. Why were we <laughs> setting up a tent outside to practice camping, for which we never did? But we yeah. were setting up a tent outside at dusk, and I couldn't. I was, I had to run inside. I was being devoured, and Paul's like, oh, "What? What? What? What's happening?" <laughs> So anyway, it was a lesson. But yeah, weather-wise, it was not for me. There were two months a year that were nice. I forget which they were in between times. That's usually when people try to hire people yeah. in that part of the country. Oh, yeah. That's Come actually visit. when I went out to uh, to interview uh, TSR. I believe it was maybe late sep well, September-ish, something like that. I remember at least two other stories about you almost dying out there. Mm. One, one was a winter story. Can you mm. tell us that one? So, yeah, the, the legitimate one was the winter story. Mike Carr and other well-meaning people took me out at night, snowmobiling for the first time I'd ever been on a snowmobile. Um, let me drive one. This was very, I mean, this is, you know, I was amazed, but fine. So I was driving around on this dark, dark lake following uh, Mike Carr and who else was there? Tim Cahoon, maybe? I can't remember exactly. But I was following them, and I guess they had cracked the ice and safely negotiated it, and I just went boosh right into the water. Um, at the time, I was very scared. I leapt. Yeah. It was slushy, though. It was slushy, so slow sinking, leapt out onto the ice. Um, and I guess it wasn't very deep, as it turned out, but uh, deeper than a person. But anyway, so yeah, that was bad. Frozen legs. But apparently people had been watching some... Uh, People living on the edge of the lake saw the lights of the snowmobile disappear, so they had already called people, and so I probably would have been rescued if I went all the way in. But yeah, don't do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, good good lesson. I think they mm. probably were looking out there going, why are people snowmobiling on a not-frozen lake? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, you should ask Mike Carr, what was he thinking? Well, I think they meant well. They wanted to take, you know, show the new, the guy, you know, the ropes and the funds of, of, of Lake Geneva. I think they... They also locked you in the attic once, right? Well, I don't remember exactly why I was walking around up there, but yeah, that wasn't nearly as deadly. That was just silly falling through the ceiling. <laughs> I would not have died there. Even if... Just injury. Yeah, injury. Uh... <laughs> Let's see. Um, so when you think... 
uh, about the time you spent at TSR and you were there for two and a half, three years? Uh, I think closer to two years spanning 79, 80, and 81. What do you think is your favorite illustration or, or collection of illustrations you did there? Uh, whenever somebody asks me that, I always think about the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, in the first, uh, the Cthulhu, <clears throat> <that, that, clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> uh, whenever, whenever someone asks me that, I always think about the Cthulhu mythos in the first edition of Deities and Demigods. A couple of those pictures are my favorites. Which ones? Uh, Yog sothoth uh, he, He's got all his little uh, spawns coming out of him, and uh, it's a really nice, complete illustration. And then Cthulhu himself. I mean, it, I really like that Cthulhu. Uh, it's interesting to me, when I was creating it, I wasn't really thinking about him being gigantic, but being sort of in his dreaming city, sort of as more of an amorphous entity. Uh, and I like his intelligence in my drawing, um, as opposed to the more bestial depictions of him. He always seemed, uh, I don't know why, but I always thought of him as m more intelligent. I'm not sure. Sure. But. Yeah. Well, I think... I mean, to be all-powerful super gods of evil in human primordialness, you got to have some IQ, I think. Yeah, I mean, not to say the giant monsters don't, but they don't seem like they do as much, I don't know, when they're flailing around gigantically. Yeah, uh, I mean, you got Shoggoths. They seem like they can obey orders, but they aren't necessarily like college grads or anything. Yeah. Okay, cool. And what what I remember when I showed up just about the time that Deities and Demigods was coming out... But we had to do two editions. There was the first edition with the Cthulhu Mythos and the Elric art. And then there was the second edition that did not. Yeah, they, t they had to take them out. I guess they, for some reason, were publishing uh, other people's uh, intellectual property without asking them or getting the rights to do it. We were quite surprised Yeah, that, that our executives were making these moves and... <laughs> Well, <laughs> the executives hadn't been necessarily high-powered executives for long. I hmm. remember at one point, my boss's boss's boss, previous job had been an exterminator and had become a big mucky muck at TSR. Yeah. So there was a lot of local Lake Geneva residents getting pretty good jobs. Hmm. So... While you were at TSR and, and after, you've been, you know, in the role-playing gaming world. Um, you met both Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, the two people credited with inventing Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing games. What were they like? Well, <clears throat> at TSR, we did see Gary uh, on occasion. We didn't really work very closely with him. <clears throat> um, uh, at TSR... Uh, we did see uh, Gary Gygax uh, on occasion, and I always got like a good vibe from him, like the vibe of a creator. Like he wasn't, we knew he was, you know, sort of in charge along with some of the other executives we saw, but he didn't have that corporate creature vibe to me. Um, and uh, it was always nice to see him and talk to him. Uh, especially cool was uh, he was one of the player judges in the uh, Dungeon Master contest. I think it was for. Gen Con 8, if the web treats me right. Um, and uh, that was really fun. He really had this, you know, 
it was he was a like a warm friendly guy player even though he was judging me like i had other player judges in that same game for example brian bloom who i got a very different vibe from and uh, actually i did pretty well in that contest but it was brian bloom throwing pepper at a monster and then me get black pepper and then me getting some uh ad and d rule that would handle that wrong that i think sunk me so but it was a lot of fun yeah uh, now uh dave arneson I didn't meet at TSR at all. I don't think he was part of it at that time. Um, but I did see him many years later at uh, SoCal Gen Con uh, uh, to 2005. I'm not quite sure. And he also had a really cool vibe. Sort of a... Um, uh, he, you know, he's pretty old at that time. But uh, sort of a gentle, creative guy. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't know him that well. I wonder if they had any idea how much what they were doing was going to change culture. I certainly didn't. Oh no, not at that time. Not not in yeah, nineteen eighty seventy nine. I mean, it was it was getting big, but I'm I don't think anybody realized how long lasting it would be. Yeah, um, there was one day he did come visit TSR. I remember it was oh, the honestly? day. Yeah, we tried oh, to stage it, a coup. I, I don't know if you remember this. Um, that it did not work. Spoiler. But we wanted to have a different boss at the top. I think we had a problem maybe with, with the Blooms. And we had decided that Mike Carr was the person we wanted to have be our boss. This sounds vaguely familiar. And again, like, I was maybe 19 tops. And uh, so all of us had get, been given very small amounts of TSR stock that had voting rights. And by small amounts, I mean like 5 to 10 shares. And so the day came to vote uh, someone onto the board, and it was a shoe-in for one of the Bloom brothers, as I recall, because they had so much stock. But Arneson showed up, and uh, he and his lawyer sat in the corner of the dungeon hobby shop basement. I remember being there, but I, but I guess I just wasn't aware that Arneson was there or something. Well, we all voted our—when the time came, we all voted our shares— for Mike Carr, who had no clue this was coming. <laughs> now, in retrospect, we put him in a horrible place. Hmm. But Arneson didn't want to vote for Bloom. And so he ended up voting for Mike Carr as well, just because he didn't know what else to do. And it seemed like a neutral move. And I remember when that happened, Arneson had a lot of shares. Mike Carr's face, he was really not happy with how things were going. <laughs> and ultimately, ultimately... Brian Bloom just casually said, so I've, you know, I've got a lot more shares, so, you know, I win. And you said, can we count the number of people who voted for Mike versus you? <laughs> and Brian Bloom got very upset. said, that doesn't matter. But he lost that vote. Just oh, in wow. Case I wish wondering. I remembered that. Damn it. <laughs> um, this is important and something I think we agree on, but I want to make it clear. Bugbears, their head... Is it a pumpkin head or a bug head? Okay, so, I yeah, I mean, there's room for both, in my opinion. I'd like to see more bug-headed bugbears, but the, the pumpkin one is totally solid. But let's not forget the bugbears uh, from Trampier's work. Those, to me, are like the mainstream bugbears. I mean, and I actually had a chance to to honor those or make an homage to those for Hackmaster cover where the bugbears are winning. They are absolutely winning. Um, it's carnage. The adventures have been undone by bugbears and it's, it's his, 
It might have been uh, uh, Sutherland and Trampius. They both drew early bugbears with those, those faces. They're like, it's kind of like a combination of a Greek mythological painting where the tongue is sticking out and a gorilla or something. I don't know, but it's the third. There are three. I guess that's the lessons here. Okay. Excellent. So uh, you were involved in role-playing games early on, but a, a big part of gaming, of course, was early video games, games, mm. games and arcades. Did you go to any particular arcade? Uh, yes. We had a great arcade in Berkeley called Silver Ball Gardens, and I think they had, it seemed like a prototype of Space Wars, like the first one. I'm not sure exactly, but it had less regalia than later versions I saw, uh, you know, less official-looking uh, paint and stuff. Uh, and that was a fantastic game. Um, but we also had, I think we... Uh, uh, yeah, and I think before TSR, Space Invaders also came out and was in the uh, student commons of uh, UC Berkeley. And that was amazing. I mean, rows of people deep before you even get to the machine. People just watching and like... Yeah, so that was Space Invaders there in, on, on the Berkeley campus. And then at TSR, I think that's when uh, there was a bar next door, right next to the office, uh, that had um, uh, asteroids. Definitely had asteroids. And across the street, there was this old, weird arcade that had a lot of weird old stuff. But that's when Defender came out. And we had some fun playing Defender. But that was... A, I have to hand it to Asteroids over Defender, though. You could work Asteroids for a long time. A Defender had, would take your money. <laughs> Asteroids, of course, being based on that Space Wars core is, is really near and dear to the Star Control heart. Mm. Um, I've never actually played the original Space Wars. We didn't play it? Well, the, the, oh, the one that's an earlier ball, one. The, I think you're right. The guy who made the stand-up arcade version of Space Wars was a Berkeley resident, and he made prototypes that he tested there at Silver Ball. And I remember that crazy, like, big keypad hmm. that was sort of glued to the side to control the user interface for Space Wars. I don't think that was... <laughs> that looked really homebrew there. And he, hmm. he later also brought in his um, Oops, the contraceptive yes, game. Yes, One player was the syringe of contraceptive, and the other player was the wave of sperm. That Promising, was, but not as fun. Nope, not. didn't get outside of Silver Ball. And then he did a uh, four-unit uh, Maze Wars back. Uh, I don't know. If it, I don't know if it was only there for a few weeks, and I remember talking with him there, and he was very disappointed at how hard it was to get four people on four different machines all playing together. But it was pretty damn cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Asteroids, I've been... Whenever I'm sort of trying to learn a new development environment, I try to re-implement Asteroids. And uh, so I've recently found the source code for it, and I've been trying to relearn 6502 assembly language so that I can understand what the hell they were doing in there. But it's it's been too long, and my brain is too old to mm. really decipher it effectively. Oh, I also want to mention what one of the greatest... Uh, video games of all time was the two-player version of ripoff and we were lucky enough to buy one of those was it from like a mafia auction i don't know what it was but but yeah so we had that a uh, copy of that an actual copy of the uh arcade game had served for many years but that i recommend if you can try the two-player version of ripoff not the one player the two-player it's really fun yeah cooperative 
cooperative game. It was that cinematronics vector oh, yes. technology. Oh yeah, right. And you then were protecting had... a little pile in the center, <laughs> and you had your two ships, and uh, yeah, it was it was good. You even uh-huh. had a couple of excellent weird expletive bugs that would show up every now and then, and you treasured those. Uh, it's a good game. When the little thing got stuck in the corner, yeah, yeah, yeah. that little the little thing they stole. Yeah, it was actually a really great game, and one of the first instances of sort of a horde mode like mechanic, where players are defending against. Yes, yes. Creatures coming in. Yeah, that was great. They're, I'm trying to remember. There were several mechanical games that we played as well back then, and there were pinball games. Were there any other? Uh, what was your favorite pinball games? Pinball? Uh, you know, it just doesn't... It, I think back and I, you know, one pinball... I mean, like, there was one... Okay, uh... I did enjoy one pinball game that was at a uh, tennis uh, sort of, um, what, what is that kind of, it's like a resort in Lake Tahoe that my parents used to go to. And of course I would go with them because I was like nine years old or something like that. And there was a pinball game there called El Dorado and it kicked ass. That's the only one that stands out. They all just blend together. Unlike video games, which for some reason don't blend together like that. Uh, I guess because they were far fewer, and they were all much more different from each other than pinball games, which are really, uh, I mean, pinball enthusiasts will now kill me, but um, it's more about uh, details rather than broad strokes with the difference between pinball games, I think. Central core mechanic. Remains the same. Hit hit the silver ball. Don't let it go. Keep (laughs) it going. Great. Um, There's a, a museum in Rochester, New York, called the Strong Museum of Play, that has been putting together a collection of video games and, and quite a few servo-mechanical games like old pinball machines. And if any of you are ever out in Rochester, I highly recommend that you go visit that museum. And if you can possibly get into their cold storage and look at some of their really old games, it's a, it's a great experience. Uh, let's see, what else? Okay. Oh, um, I got a question. So you were a very good video game player. Excellent reflexes. You had the highest score of people we knew. Did you ever compete? No, no. The only game, I think the only game competition was that uh, DM, DMing competition at TSR. Have, have you competed that's not in... a video game, of course, but... You know, competition is a huge deal right now that with the Overwatch League and League of Legends. I mean, there's bazillions of dollars flowing around through that economy now. Have you had any interest in competing competitively in computer games? Oh, I would have like 20 years ago when I was really good at it. <laughs> Not now. Yeah, no, I was the office champion uh, in Microprose Spectrum Holobyte at, at uh, Doom or Quake. Quake. It lasted, yeah, several years. I was kicking these young dudes' asses. It was fun. But I think those reflexes have now faded away. <laughs> um, after TSR, you came back to the Bay Area. Did you start making video games right away? No, uh, I went back to uh, UC Berkeley, I think, for at least a year, maybe slightly more. Uh, And then I studied painting there. And then I went to uh, uh, the Art Academy in San Francisco and studied illustration uh, for about a year. Um, At this time, were we starting to transition from traditional painting and ink to digital media? 
We can start that one over. Oh, okay. No, there was something about that that I wanted to mention. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Uh, no, first I went back to UC Berkeley and, and studied painting uh, for about a year. Then I went to the Art Academy in San Francisco and studied illustration for a little bit longer. And uh, oh, and I, sometime during that period, I got a chance to playtest the most excellent game, Archon, The Light and the Dark, which you might be familiar with. Um, and then after that, I started working for a, a graphics software developer called Island Graphics. And I worked there for uh, maybe seven, eight years, uh, during which time I did do uh, the freelance work for Star, Starflight 2 and uh, Star Control and Star Control 2. And then shortly thereafter, I started full-time uh, 93 at uh, what was then Spectrum Holobyte and became Microprose and Games.com. <laughs> oh, so how do I phrase it? Through all the the schools that you went through and the different forms of training, were there any teachers that stood out as being particularly inspiring or, or helpful? Yeah, I I've, I think of one guy uh, named Baron Story who was an illustration teacher at uh, the Art Academy. Um, and this was after I worked at TSR and everything. But still, he was, it was both he, uh, his approach, and the class. At illustration school, there's not nearly as much room for creativity as there is when you're, um, for example, studying painting at UC Berkeley, where it's just almost too much freedom in a sense. Not enough freedom at illustration school, except for Baron Story's class. He had a really... Uh, it was the class he was teaching. It was, <laughs> it was a place where uh, now you were allowed to be creative, and that was, uh, uh, and he was really good at it. He really. Uh, it was funny though, you know. I mean, and, and I was really good in that class. I actually took it, I think, at least twice, even though I wasn't getting more credit for it the second time. But it was interesting to see, um, not to say non-creative, but more uh, mainstream illustrators struggle in that class. It was interesting. Um, but yeah, he's a great illustrator, and I think. Um, a teacher I think of who, who was inspiring. Great. Okay. I'm going to stop right now because I'm kind of panicking. Just want to make sure that this was recording. Oh. Probably should have checked earlier. And we're back. Okay. So what's the most difficult, weird, or unusual job you've ever had? Crap. No, this is one that I don't think I had. Okay. <laughs> That's one could I could wait for the beep, beep, beep to go away if you want to think about that. But it may not go away. So, uh, let's see. I'll ask that question again. What's the what's the most unusual? Okay, I just have to live with the beep. That's fine. Um, no, no problem. It's it's part of life. It'll it's verisimilitude. Cinema verite. What is it? Um, All right, so I don't know if I have a good answer, but I'll give an answer. Uh, I don't know how unusual or difficult this is, but it convinced me that I never wanted to have a real job in my life, and that was making crepes. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was making crepes at the Crepe Escape, which was restaurant work, um, but it was very uh, specific. We stood behind the counter, and you had this little crepe machine, and you would pull out the dough. 
and then you would fill it with uh, delicious things. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know it's interesting, isn't it? The, the um, what is that empathetic reaction when people, especially when people cough in the office, it's all of a sudden everyone's coughing. It's like, it's but it's only with coughing. It's not like with sneezing. When we sneeze, everybody doesn't start sneezing, but the throat and yawning, and, coughing. Well, Everyone feels it. <clears throat> um, there's Excuse social mirroring, and then there's neur- neuron mirroring. Hmm. There, there are, uh, anyway, people. I was wondering about the, the folding your arms thing. Oh, there's that's, that. That's a powerful people. One. Yeah, people, or even just like it's not just that. It's like, and then like this. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, yeah, so this <clears throat> this was not necessarily unusual or difficult, but it made me realize I never wanted to do a real job, quote unquote, real. And that was making crepes at the Crepe Escape. Uh, you would uh, draw out um, dough on this little hot thing, and it would heat up, and you'd fill it with delicious stuff. And that was fun. We ate, I ate a lot and gained more weight than I ever have before because um, you could make dessert crepes and fill them with three times the amount that the customer would get of chestnut paste and blueberries and whipped cream and yeah, that was a yeah. There were some benefits to the job, but it was horrible at the same time. I'm trying to think if there were any. Um, there was making falafel, but that had its upsides. We were at the Greek theater. Making oh yeah, no, that was fun, but mainly because it was also very limited. Like having to go back every day. Oh, you know, actually, there was a, yeah. The Grape Escape did have some moments. There were there was. Um, uh, a lot of cockroaches there, which you wouldn't know at first because they weren't scurrying all around. But um, but you needed to go take care of them. And when you would go in the back and move a cardboard box, I, 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 I thought that they had failed. When they had uh, painted the restaurant, they just left the boxes in place and painted around them because it was this dark square behind the box. But it just was a solid mass of cockroaches. <laughs> big ones, little ones, baby ones, and then we took the spray to them, and then that big square scattered. <clears throat> but it doesn't kill them. I mean, they're amazing creatures. Probably just annoyed them more than anything. Yeah, else. they just spread out in this vast army. Yeah. I really hope the crepe escape isn't still open. I never saw a cockroach in the, you know, in the vats of food that you put in the crepe. I will say that. I mean, and I was right there looking over them. So I think even though there were a lot of cockroaches there, we didn't serve them. That's good. I was admit, you're a good employee. Yeah, I was, yeah, because I was eating it too. So I was looking. Yeah, yeah. I I have myself been served cockroach puris here in Berkeley. That was disturbing. I was trying to be cool. I was with this person who I didn't want to be real uncool with. So it was like, just oh, hey, look, they've deep fried a cockroach, and it's served. We'll just put this to the side and keep eating. And in retrospect, like <laughs> anyway. Um, so uh, uh, yes, uh, did you ever get offered a job that you were glad you turned down? Yeah, so this is the, uh, I definitely thought of something. <clears throat> this is more uh, about uh, getting a job that you were glad they turned you down for. And uh, that was uh, after uh, MicroPro shut down and then I moved to games.com. Oh, wait, no. After MicroPro shut down, I was looking for a job and I went back to that graphics company, Island Graphics. And was exploring uh, going back to work there, but uh, but they turned me down, and that was really lucky because then I started working for Games.com, which then also shut down just in time for me to work for Toys for Bob. So 
yeah, it's weird. These uh, like, yeah, that would have been terrible. <laughs> Go back to Island Graphics and miss that. Yeah, no. So that that was great. Good job, Dan. Uh, when you were at <clears throat> Island Graphics, uh, you actually did a bunch of illustrations for the Amiga mm. and then later for the Targa that were used sort of for corporate purposes. Mm-hmm. That what, was your, what were the illustrations you were proud of that you did back then? Well, I, yeah, I did a lot of, I guess it was sort of demoing the systems. They, they were some of the first uh, paint, <clears throat> paint systems for the Amiga uh, and also the, the Targa, some of the first true color paint systems way before the Mac, way before Photoshop. Missed opportunities. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, I think it was later in Island Graphics history when they were making some of the first really high resolution uh, paint systems. Uh, and I actually, at that time, that was, uh, I think, just after Star Control 2, where I was working uh, almost exclusively digitally for a while using these high-resolution paintings. And uh, some of them came out pretty good. I was submitting uh, them to uh, Seagraph, and they were in some of the Seagraph shows. Um, uh, some abstracts, self-portraits, some pretty strange uh, compositions. It's hard to describe them, but yeah, that was uh, some of those later digital paintings were were notable. If those exist in file formats that we could interpret these days, that would be great. I went hunting for the Targa Eagle, but I couldn't find it. I don't know if you have it in. I don't know. You know, I had, I, I might have some of that stuff. I had. Um, boy, I was really stupid. So I had this computer at home, but Island Graphs was cool enough to let me keep, and I had a lot of. Uh, stuff on there for many years and I had backed up some of it onto SideQuest cartridges <laughs> and one day that computer just died just died and at the time oh so then, I, then eventually I thought I had everything backed up on the SideQuests and then I, <clears throat> in later years I tried to get stuff off them and didn't get everything off them and I took that hard drive down someplace in the South Bay and they said they couldn't fix it I couldn't get it off, and I still have that hard drive. And I went to a place near work where they said, we can get anything. We can get everything. So I brought it to them, like, no problem. And then a couple of weeks passed, we can't get this. So <laughs> I have this hard drive. I might have, I think I have some stuff that could help, but not everything, which is too bad. That'd be cool to get that. Yeah, those, the early True Color paint systems, I remember visiting you at Island Graphics and, you know, seeing, uh, We've been painting with mice on PCs, oh, God. but uh, using starting to use styluses, mm. that mm-hmm. was a big difference. And one of the questions that we have been thinking about, Fred and I, is when we look at making a sequel to the Iroquois Masters, which we're calling the ghosts of the precursors right now, um, is whether to do it in true color, which is what everything in the world is done now, just any color you want, or whether to go back and somehow try to find a palletized version um, there's something about palletized art and color cycling that is evocative and of the time, but there's always this question about being too retro. Hmm. What do you think? I was just looking at some uh, slightly earlier art than uh, Star, <clears throat> Star Control. Some of the uh, digital deluxe paint images I made for uh, Star Flight 2, and there's, there is something about that stuff. I mean, when it's so crisp and interesting... You know, we did weird little tricks to try and achieve 
things like uh, stuff faded into the background where you would just overlay um, an interlaced pattern of the background color to create the illusion of fog and things. And it's amazing the amount of you know, uh, <laughs> labor-intensive uh, uh, pixel, every pixel matters uh, artwork. Uh, there's just something about it. It's true. Um, but you're also right. That's a, that's a tough question. Yeah, I was I was looking at what about um, a race that's like that. Like all of a sudden, you're in a true color game, and the we are from the future. Yeah, <laughs> we have all colors. Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to do some. I have some some modern palletized editing software that's sort of a modern take on deluxe paint and deluxe anime. And I've thought about asking the programmer. He's this nice German guy. Like, can you give me like 512 colors? And it's just like a complete. People stare at me like they can't imagine why you would have 512 colors because there's 256. And I'm like, but but that would be better. You could say this is an upgraded. As far as I know, no one has done a game with 512 <laughs> colors, only, which strikes me as somewhere in there between 512 and 1024, things get really solid and you could have lots of color cycles and. But uh, it is very interesting looking at games now and how they do sell animation. And the evolution of animation, I think, mostly on the Mac and the whole director slash flash evolution has led to this very cartoony, um, almost uh, illustrator-like mm -hmm. foreground set. And you don't see many where they just take a bitmap and animate pieces of those bitmaps. That's much more rare these days. Mm -hmm. So it's been interesting to see which way we end up going. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, who would you say, as of today, is your favorite historical figure? Fuck. <laughs> That's another one. Uh, I didn't... Nothing occurred to me. Uh, um, maybe you come back to that one? Sure. I don't know if it'll be in the background. Maybe. All right. I, an important thing to think about is... Um, you know, should magical things happen, how will you respond? You know, most people focus on the zombies or maybe getting three wishes or something like that. And by the way, if you do get three wishes, I recommend that you get rid of those blood sucking parasites and it may or may not take all three wishes to get rid of them. But here's one. What if, mosquitoes, right? But then their babies hatch those eggs hatched. So, ha, huh, you're going to need to use all three wishes. Oh, shit. I just hate to say that. Anyway, um, so imagine you had a choice. You could teleport yourself as you are with whatever you have in your pockets to either Rivendell in Middle Earth or the bridge of the Enterprise, Captain James T. Kirk, the very first one. Which would you choose and why? Uh, I think I would go with Rivendell. Um, I think you would have more opportunity to like both relax and adventure if you wanted to. I know the Enterprise has some relaxing places but it's not as big uh yeah i mean i certainly like uh i don't think there'd be as much room for self-expression on the enterprise also i think in rivendell you know you could kind of do your own thing uh if you wanted to all right yeah i think most of the people on the enterprise seems like they had a job exactly <laughs> i did once meet someone who was a, a mom of one of my kids' friends. And um, when you meet other parents, it's one of those funny situations where the normal social mechanisms that bring you together don't. It's a random person. And this seemed like the most 
traditional person I'd ever met who probably had never thought about monsters and treasure in their life. And then out of the blue, there was some difficulty going on with organizing the kids. And she just said, oh, I wish I was in Star Trek. And I just said, why? <laughs> you know, I didn't say this, but like, I know why I want to be there. But why would a normal human want to be there? And you said, because you have a job, you know what to do, and they give you the clothes to wear every day. <laughs> I just thought, huh, that's true. Those, I, those would not be the reasons that I would choose Star Trek. <laughs> But okay, different yeah. strokes. You know. Decision making was hard. Remove all decisions. <laughs> yeah, just do what you're told. Um, all right. Um, let's see. So, Dungeons and Dragons appeared in the mid 70s. It's now the mid 20 teens. Imagine we're 40 years further on in the mid 2050s. Do you mm. think people will still be playing what we think of as social D and D? Uh, yes, not to be trite, but if humans are still here, they'll be playing D&D. <laughs> and what if we're, say, stainless steel cubes? What? Well, there's, a think, a good chance that we're all going to be stainless steel cubes. Oh, okay. To survive the environment or something? Yeah, or just like it's better. Okay, that's, dif that's different. There's a lot less... Uh, expressive. I mean, I'm mad, the way I'm imagining a stainless steel cube, it has a lot less uh, ability to sort of express individuality. So that might kill it off. That might kill off D and D. Okay, well maybe that's a cubes, yeah. good reason for us to avoid that. Mm -hmm. All right. So now moving backwards to <laughs> nice one. I like that. <laughs> Don't knock the stainless steel cubes. No, there's got a lot pluses. That's they don't plus. have to change clothes every day. No, nope. there's all kinds of things. Um, all right, so um, you know you've done a tremendous amount of uh, whether it's fantasy or science fiction art for paper and and video games. What about non-commercial art stuff that's for yourself? What sort of work do you do? Uh, I've I the most that I uh, see. Uh, <clears throat> I think. The, most of that I would have done in uh, at, uh, while at UC Berkeley studying painting, abstract art, which I, I still do every now and then. I actually have something in progress now, which has been in progress for a long time. Not to say it's very far along, but yeah, I keep it up every now and then. Uh, I, do, I do enjoy uh, abstract painting. Um, so that's the kind of personal work. Is it digital or traditional media? <sighs> Oh, well, I've done both, but lately it's it's traditional media. That's mainly, uh, uh, I work mainly in acrylics uh, for painting, especially abstract art. Although I did do several, uh, like I said, uh, on the high resolution at the time, high resolution paint systems uh, by Island Graphics. I did some abstracts as well as some figurative uh, work. Great. That's, that, you got to have a show sometime. I don't know. Have you ever thought about having a show of your personal work? Uh, I need more. I need more. I have a f uh, actually when you it said somewhere you might be interested in showing one of those. I think that's cool. And uh, yeah, one I, I would really like to, to show. That. I need to take ro roll out on this little, the big one I used to have up. I had big walls at uh, Bonnie Lane. Mm -hmm. If you remember it, it was like a big abstract on the wall. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I'd like to. Uh, it's. I guess to get a image of that, I need to hang it up somewhere 
on a wall. It would also work on the floor, but then you'd need to get up high to <laughs> anyway, or mount a mirror to the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. Need to <laughs> the um, yeah. Now, if you have something like that, that would be great. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be cool. I have some of the, uh, the the digital abstracts, I think, but that one is more, there's this one in particular that I, that I keep thinking about. Uh, not necessarily that I want to do that again, but it was a good representation of what I was trying to do. So, okay, we'll see if this. I've got an idea. See if this works. Um, what I want to do is this may be really stupid. We'll see. I want to try to surprise each of the people I interview with a small section of freeform role playing, inheriting what has happened in the previous interviews. So we're going to try to do some character creation right now, since you're the first one. The first thing you ever do in a role playing game is to um, create a character. So we're going to use uh, things that people have heard of to help us work with this. So. The first thing I'm going to say is you are going to pick a, um, a character class. It needs to be a job, trade, profession um, from, say, you can pick either Star Trek or Lord of the Rings. So pick a profession that is has been represented. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, of course, we can edit out this brain freeze part. Um, I'm not sure that you saw this person, but I th think someone was responsible um, in Loth. How do you say that, Lothlorien? Someone was responsible in Lothlorien for the maintenance of the glowing moats. All right. Maintenance care of feeding and uh, <laughs> distributing glowing moats, and that is my profession. Glowing moatster, glowing moat wrangler. That's good. And I think residents of Lethlorian had lived a long time, so you've probably learned some skills there on the side, which we can get to later. All right. In terms of your appearance, um, you can choose any person, probably a famous person, from before the year 2000, what is your visual appearance? What person does your glowing moat maintain maintenance person? Did, did, did you say a famous person? It could be someone, it, preferably someone that people know, or you're going to need to describe them. If it's someone, a family or personal friend, you will need to describe them. Oh, uh, Captain Ahab. Okay. So one leg, one, well, two legs. Gregory one. Peck, Captain Ahab, yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of... Limping around the moats, making sure. Yeah, with the, the lamb choppy beard. <laughs> okay, and um, uh, you have a satchel. Um, in your satchel, uh, you may have one object from this house that we are currently recording in. What is in your satchel? Yeah, I also said a couple things that I don't want people to know that I have. <laughs> yeah, I maybe we don't get into said the cash of gold and a couple of the shush. Uh, we'll, 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 pencil uh, sharpener. Can you repeat that as I was? Oh, 
I think I would like in my satchel a pencil sharpener, but not just any pencil sharpener. My Panasonic pencil sharpener that I purchased in 1980, which still works better than any pencil sharpener I've ever found since. And any artists out there, I think, will share this as, for example, my wife complains about her pencil sharpeners for her various art projects every day. So oh, you, you have a magic one over I've there. I bought a couple of them over the years, you know, to have it at the office. And I'm like, what's wrong with these? And I come home and I'm like, this thing is gold, man. It's sharpened thousands and thousands and thousands of pencils. Okay, well, I'm then okay. going to give you skills somehow relating to illustration or rune drawing. Um, do you think there's rune drawing? <clears throat> Do you think that there is rune drawing connected with the maintenance of the glowing modes? Of the oh, yeah, that, that sounds reasonable. Yes. Okay, so that's good for now. We're going to hand this off probably to Greg Johnson, who will pick up this character and go on an initial adventure. But thank you. Okay. We could do that for a long time, but I think that'd be a left one. Oh, uh, one, one question you asked me. I don't know if you're going to ask me. Not, yeah, yeah. Not that I have. Actually, it's interesting. I, uh, the different creative experiences question. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was I don't think I have a great actual answer, but I thought Good. that it would be cool to read some of the uh, limerickers' limericks okay, as examples of writing. Maybe uh, it could be entertaining part. Great. Of the... So we've said. Or no, actually. So you've contributed. Um, so twenty-five years ago, you contributed to Star Control Two in a lot of different ways art writing, play testing, voice acting. Now, when you go into those different creative endeavors, uh, how's the mindset like? How is it different? Uh, <clears throat> well, it's, this is kind of obvious, but for a painting or a drawing, the first thing is seeing something in your mind's eye or having an image appear, hopefully. Sometimes it doesn't, but and then you have to try and make it work and then for for music uh hearing a uh like a phrase or a rhythm sometimes accompanied with lyrics sometimes not and these things <clears throat> uh you strive to make them happen uh applying them toward uh a project or an assignment or sometimes and I used to keep a little recorder and a pad of paper by my bed because and you know I've heard this is fairly common uh not a common occurrence but uh, amongst people is when right when you're falling asleep but you haven't fallen asleep this one of these images or sounds may appear to you and then it's on you, uh, or at least for me, it was on me to get up and record it or write it down because I would never remember it otherwise. Um, so that, that, that was sort of a tool. Um, for writing, it's different. For me, I've never actually written anything that wasn't gaming-related, nothing significant. So those kinds of writings come with uh, a less open-ended uh, opportunity than than painting or music for me anyway in the in the, the scope of projects I've done. But that doesn't mean they aren't interesting and creative. It's just that there may be some technical requirement that the game places upon what you're actually writing about. Um, but you can still have fun and be creative. I'm thinking of some limericks 
that I wrote for uh, a first edition uh, adventure. And these limericks were sort of a spell cast by the limerickers. And once they completed them, uh, usually terrible things would happen to the adventurers. Do you have those limericks with you? I'm glad you asked. I would actually enjoy reading a couple of them. I was thinking about that. <laughs> you actually missed... Uh-huh. And they were much harder to stop. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's see. Okay. Um, and then after you read the limerick, tell me what if you can remember an, an example of what would have happened to you. Oh, absolutely. Actually, each limerick uh, and is an example of um, game-related writing. At each limerick is uh, a rhyme, but I also ha- yes since uh, I had to account for what would happen to the players, the descriptions will follow. So this character's name was Clars, uh, a good fellow, long-time player in my campaign. Clars's mouth became dark as coal, as from it emerged a black hole. Gravitational woes, should one venture... <laughs> Clars's mouth became dark as coal, as from it emerged a black hole. Gravitational woes, should one venture too close, where'd he go? All that's left is his soul. So when this limerick completed, and I think it did, his eyes grow wide as his mouth opens and from it pops a black sphere that hovers before him. He cannot move, transfixed by it. He he begins to spin around the sphere faster and faster until he is merely a blur. Suddenly his physical body and the sphere wink out of existence, but remaining is a shadowy presence, his soul which floats docilely in limbo before you. It doesn't sound good for Clars. No, I think there was a way out. Uh, once you... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the limerickers, when you kill them, would drop maybe one or two moats, which you could then use to restore the individual. Um, so those are highly prized. Uh, okay, this one was for... Um, one of the players at uh, uh, the North Texas role-playing game convention. Surrounded by tadpoles was Leo. Wherever you'd go... (laughs) These are not easy to say. Surrounded by tadpoles was Leo. Wherever you go, they croaked, we go. So he leapt into acid while the tadpoles grew placid. He ditched his new friends as he flowed. So when this one completed, Leo appeared agitated as he is ringed by dozens of tadpoles who follow his every move. He looks this way and that desperate to get away from them. Suddenly he smiles as he spots... Leo appears agitated as he is ringed with dozens of tadpoles who follow his every move. He looks this way and that desperate to get away from them. Suddenly he smiles as he spies a pool of dark liquid. He quickly leaps in. As he dissolves, the tadpoles look downcast and begin dispersing. <laughs> Poor tadpoles. Maybe, yeah. Maybe one can one... only imagine how that carried into their frog existence or whatever their development phase oh, that followed traumatized. tadpoles. Oh, traumatized. Yeah. yeah. Okay, one last one. Okay. Maybe, maybe two. Not that you would use all of them, but we'll just do two. Okay. <clears throat> Nadir gazed up at the tower, where the maiden cried out for her chowder. As he handed it up, she snapped. 
Nadir gazed up at the tower, where the maiden cried out for her chowder. As he handed it up, she snatched at the cup. To this day that fine stew they devour. This actually doesn't sound too bad, but... Uh, Depends on how much you like chowder, I Yeah, think. yeah. Looking up, he spies a lass demanding the steaming soup he holds in his hands. He quickly scampers up the tower, delivering the dish. There they pass it back and forth, extolling its virtues forevermore. Yeah, definitely not one of the worst, worst fates. <laughs> now, what do the limerickers themselves look like? Oh, that's... Yeah, that, that was them. Oh! They're like... They float. They're kind of like an evil fairy pixie thing with a distended belly of a malnutritious... Yeah! They float, looking like a sick fairy with a long nose and a distended belly. And they they take great pleasure in their rhymes. Okay, just one more. All right. I just enjoy this too much, sorry. Uh, Lavuth had a vision primeval. Methane burst from the ocean's upheaval. Not enough air for creatures with hair. Now ruling the world was... Oh. <laughs> Lavuth. Lavuth had a vision primeval. Methane burst from the ocean's upheaval. Not enough air for creatures with hair. Now ruling the world was the weevil. So that's kind of obvious what happened there. That, I think, is really relevant to what's going on today yeah, as well. Yeah, hopefully not. Have you been keeping up with the polar ice cap? I haven't. Yeah. I think you know me. A- I do search the, the polar uh, thickness and surface area regularly. I'm also following the methane outbursts up oh. in the Arctic. But, um, you know, it's not good. I don't think you and I are going to pay the price. We'll probably succumb to something else before things go really bad. But. It was really hot here. I remember September? I mean, it was bad. No AC. I mean, I was like, did I, I tell you about? Oh no, it was yeah. So I was in, I had couldn't be up here. It was ninety seven degrees up here. Oh, so I went downstairs where I think it was probably about ninety two, and I took off my shirt and I had a bowl of water, <laughs> and a towel and a fan. I actually moved. I actually that made me get a new TV, which I should have done anyway because I took my TV. Put it downstairs so I could watch TV. While I sat there and splashed myself with water and the fan point, and I and that was and I was like, you know, if this is the future, I am just totally fucked. I mean, head north. Because if I had not been doing that, I would have felt really bad anyway. I had to do that. Just like Lost in Space, we'll need our sleep ice. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, that's yeah. I I really like the limericks. There's something about, well, so most of the writing I've done is also for games and, uh, but I've watched people who write poetry work on their poems. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see the layers of effort that go into the restricted forms with whether or not you're rhyming. There's usually, you know, questions of rhythm and syllable, how many syllables you use and how they're connected. And you were talking earlier about the limitations from games and writing within them. Do you ever find restrictions are inspiring? Oh, I would say absolutely. It's it's in in exactly what you were talking about there with poetry uh, or lyrics. I, uh, the limitation is, you know, so many fewer words than like in a story, even a short story, a poem or lyrics just has so few that each one becomes really important, like pixels back in the day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and that is inspiring where every, you know, this word or that word in this one, this 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 piece of, of writing that's only like 20 words long, it's like everything becomes really important. So definitely. 
That's the thing about the the low resolution art you're talking about, as well as the amount of pixels, the colors. Just what exact color am I going to use and sacrifice one of my sixteen colors here? I mean, that's that's missing, and not like in a bad way, but there's something good about having those restrictions that uh, makes the art form completely a different discipline. Yeah, you know, I went back and looked at pixel art from the four color, 16 color, and 256 color era. And definitely the four color art from the early IBM is just horrible. It's unpleasant when it becomes that restrictive. But, but there was... starting at 16, mm -hmm. it's there's something about the quantized nature of edges, like you were describing. Um, I was looking at Mark Ferrari's work from Monkey Island, mm. and that dude dithered Mm -hmm. Like he was born to dither. I don't know what he does now, but if it's not dithering, Mark, <laughs> get back to it. But there is something different about looking at that work than looking at a beautiful painting. And I don't know if it's, you know, kind of the rose colored glasses of the experience we had back then. But when I look at it, I feel more involved in the image. Mm. I feel like I'm, I'm helping to make ah, that image uh -huh. alive, uh -huh. which inter always interests me as compared to just getting the thing delivered to you completely. Right, right, because it is, you're sort of completing it in your mind. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's well, also something about following, and this may be OCD-ish um, tendencies, but looking at the dither pattern, and if it's done correctly, it is very satisfying. <laughs> and if it's not, it makes one anxious. No, absolutely, especially, and no truer and more difficult a task than describing a circle or ellipse and just is it that pixel or is that sometimes it's impossible based on where the, the ellipse is in the image but it, it when it is possible and it's not done right you're like ah that's <laughs> why didn't you put that pixel there yeah um oh well, i keep thinking about the tandaloo uh that i did for uh, uh um <laughs> starflight too <laughs> yeah i keep thinking about the tandaloo that i did for starflight too that was one of my favorite low res uh uh, pieces of artwork and mainly it was because of the dithering of the background tandaloo uh, which was you know merely just taking uh, the image and then overlaying a, a interlaced pattern of the background color which just faded them into the background and it was just like uh, I don't know satisfying <laughs>